I have never met a nice cat. People tell me all the time that they exist, but in my experience, cats are the worst. And I think they're the worst because I believe given the choice, they're always going to choose to be jerks. I caved once and our family took in a kitten that was part in a, of an abandoned litter. We named her Midnight. She was cute-ish, but she turned into be a devil cat. There, there's a reason why we left her in California with some other family before we moved here. Why was she so bad? On top of all the other lame things that cats do, like knocking over coffee mugs for no reason, only being seen when they want to be fed, and taking a nap on your laptop when you need to work, on top of all of that, she hunted my children. She would wait under coffee tables and behind walls, and when my kids would come like skipping down the hallway, minding their own business, she pounced. She would also, just for no reason, swipe at me. She would like chill uh, by my head on the couch while I was watching a baseball game and then pow, 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 pow. Like it was unbelievable how evil this cat was. Now, I know what you're gonna say. Not every cat is like that. And I'm sure your cat is the nicest, most fluffy and gentle cat in the entire world. All I'm saying is I've never met a cat that I ultimately didn't think was a jerk. They're such jerks. Also, this is not a request for me to meet all of your cats. I learned a few weeks ago from Michael when he talked about liking cookies that some of you actually made him cookies. I'm not mentioning cats here because I want cats. But if you're interested, I do like pepperoni pizza, opening day tickets to baseball games where the Giants play the Mariners, French Bulldogs, and boats. But let's get back to cats. Want to know what I think is the mo most ridiculous aspect of cat ownership? They will treat you like garbage and then only whine and pretend to be loving when they want something, and then go back to treating you like garbage the moment they get what they want. Now, I give them a pass on this because ultimately that's just a cat being a cat because they've learned that they can continue to be a jerk and still get fed every day. They have no reason to stop being a jerk. There was just no lesson learned, no reason to do anything different. Now, some of you parents are probably watching this wondering if I'm actually talking about cats. Yes, this time. All of this has got me thinking. It's one thing to never learn because there's no cost to not learning. Like you don't learn the lesson, but there isn't anything really bad that happens because of your mistake. So you can kind of afford to keep making that same mistake over and over again, like ordering a pumpkin spice latte in the fall. But it's another thing altogether if there's a cost to not learning your lesson and making that same mistake again. I mean, it's a new kind of ridiculousness to look back on a failure understand where you went wrong, and then for a second time, decide to do the exact same thing, but expect it to be different this time. And that's why we lament as we get older, oh, if only we knew now what I didn't know then. This is where we find ourselves in the end of this sermon series, moving into new territory. For the last few months, we've been honest about the fact that we are returning to our lives, but that will look different. Hopefully we will have learned some lessons about who God is and who we are and how we should treat others and given a choice to choose a new way of living or to keep doing what we were. We just celebrated our coronaversary, one year of doing things different. And I think it's safe to say that each and every one of us has learned some kind of lesson. For instance, I've learned that if you want to get out of doing something that you don't want to do, just respond with, oh, in a pandemic? Like, Hey, can you help me move? Ugh. In a pandemic? Hey, can you get me those reports by the end of the week? Ugh. In a pandemic? 
Hey, can you stop playing video games and help me clean out the garage? Ugh, in a pandemic? On a more serious note, I've learned who the people are that really care about me. The ones that checked up on me during the last 12 months. As a pastor, I did a lot of checking in on people, but I had a few stretches where I felt pretty lonely and just longed for someone I'm not married to or someone I didn't call mom to check up on me. That's not to point fingers, but it put a lot of my friendships into perspective. And moving forward, I'm not gonna put a whole lot of value in the amount of Facebook friends I have or the likes that I get. That's just not friendship. In fact, another big lesson that I learned was that for now at least, I need to keep social media at a social distance. It gets me way too worked up. It distracts me from more important things and taints the way that I see people. It's just not good. I've also learned that cute little answers to big faith questions doesn't cut it for me. And sometimes American churches, Pinterest boards of Bible verses and worship songs uh, just leave me pretty dissatisfied. In the middle of a pandemic, it is really hard to sing you're a good, good father or proclaim God is working all things for my good when people are dying and people are afraid and people are struggling to work. What does it really mean to say that, God, you're good? Because this last year has not felt good. So I've learned that, that I got lazy a little bit and that faith in Jesus is just messier than I was thinking. So how does this all connect to Deuteronomy? Well, history lesson. The book of Deuteronomy is a really long sermon, basically. In the beginning, Moses asked the people of God to listen to what God has to say and to love God by obeying what he commands. It also retells all the things that God is asking his people to do. Included in there are the Ten Commandments. Again, so if you're reading the Bible from start to finish, this can probably get confusing. You get to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, you read all about Moses and the, and the exit or exodus from Egypt. And then three books later, you're kind of reading it again. You're like, wait a minute, didn't I just read that? Well, Deuteronomy literally means the second law. Think of it like the second lap around a track or the second telling of a story. And it's recorded that Moses took this second law and he put it in the Ark of the Covenant and it traveled around with the people of God for years. Imagine a sermon that good that people are like, we're gonna hold on to this one forever. But why? Why would it be told a second time? Here's what I think. The lessons taught in this book are always going to be needed because people are going to make the same mistakes over and over again about how they don't take God seriously or don't fully grasp how much he cares for them or what he's doing in their life to redeem them or they just keep treating each other like cats treat their owners. It, something needs to change and needs to remind them to choose a different way. And nothing seems to be more powerful than learning about the God of the universe who wants a relationship with you. Now, fun fact, when you go and look up when was Deuteronomy written, you're going to find some things that might be a bit confusing. Some scholars think it was written by Moses right before he died as a final words kind of thing. But after he dies, the book keeps going. So probably he didn't finish it. It was probably Joshua. Other scholars believe that maybe only the middle chunk of Deuteronomy, the law part, was written by Moses, and the beginning and the end of the book were maybe added generations later, like after the Israelites were living in the Promised Land for centuries. Maybe in the seventh century by a guy named King Josiah, who found this chunk of the law in the temple and reread it and felt like this was the kind of reform his people needed. After all, his dad did just get assassinated, so they kind of had some issues. So an introduction and a conclusion were added to contextualize it a bit better and help people learn and make the change that they need. Other scholars believe that the whole thing might have been written by the Israelites while they were in exile from their own land, even centuries after King Josiah, but they were about to return and rebuild the temple. And this was like, look everyone, we've been in this position before and we can learn a lot from the mistakes of the generations before us. 
Regardless of when and who it was written by, this book has been used over and over again in many different generations with different contexts to remind the people of God to listen and to love. Deuteronomy has been used to look back on a familiar lesson and message and pleads with the reader to be mindful of the mistakes of the generations before them, to learn what they know now and to make a better choice moving forward. So let's take a look at what it says towards the end of this book. This is it. This is the last week in our series of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 20 says this. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that we have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away and bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you that this day you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, and I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So a couple things. First, I love this part, this first part, verses 11 through 14. Moses says, hey friends, this choice that you're about to make, it's not really that hard. You don't have to break into heaven and steal any codes or magic artifacts to decipher what's next. You don't have to travel across the world to uncover lost wisdom before you take your next steps. All these lessons and bits of wisdom are right here. They're near to you. It's already in your mouth and the words that you speak and in your heart and the things that you feel. You know better, don't you? And you know even better now with the perspectives that you've gained in this time away. You know that everything you need to move into new territory or the next phase of life is what God has taught you or is teaching you or has given you. So stick to the basics. Keep the main thing the main thing. We've all had time to reflect on what's important. So when the temptation to live up to external standards comes rushing back when we return to our lives, listen to what God is asking of you, not what others are asking of you. You see, I think Moses is with one last plea asking God's people, including us even as we read this, to take inventory of our heart and to care more about what's going on in here first and foremost, rather than seeking after the top 10 ways to the new you in 2021. Even though we are moving into new territory, those external standards never left. They're still seductively telling us the same lies. They still quietly and effectively make you think that the most important things are out there somewhere, still waiting to be found and claimed and pursued. But God is saying, no, listen to me and love me. See, individually, you'll be tempted to forget about what God asks of you because it's either too messy or seems too silly and it's easier just to play it safe. Or you might be tempted to fall in line with the changing cultural tides of whatever side of the aisle you land on and then just regurgitate whatever dogma you fed yourself with. 
or you'll be tempted to somehow be that self-made person who picks themselves up from the bootstraps and works really hard and finds success in whatever journey or battle you're facing and you'll begin again to think that you don't need God. Collectively, as a church, we're going to face temptations too. We'll continue to be tempted to seek after the, the, the fun and flashy programs to be more attractive than other churches in the harbor as people start to come back. Or we'll be tempted to, to follow whatever popular church leader says we should be doing without asking if that's where God's leading us. And maybe the most dangerous temptation of all is to believe that Harbor Cove is the only church that's doing it the right way. This choice to be different this time around and to listen and to love matters to you individually, but it also matters to us as a church. And thankfully, we have a new choice set before us to say, not this time. We have a unique opportunity to know what we know now and use it now instead of lamenting that we missed an opportunity in the past. And so I ask you, what are the external standards that you are still tempted to live up to? And what are they doing to your heart and to your mind? The second thing I pick up from these verses is that Moses pretty much lays it out for his people. He basically says, okay, we've been through all this stuff before. We've learned all these lessons. We've learned the cost of turning our backs on God, and we've learned the benefits of choosing to love God. And he doesn't even really ask politely here. He says this, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands. I mean, have you ever been so sure of something that you're so confident when you talk to your friends about it, you didn't even mess around? I remember in 2010, I had a friend who had season tickets to San Francisco Giants baseball games. And we went to a game that year and I noticed that after we got past the turnstiles, he, he took out a little metal case and he put the ticket ever so gently uh, in a stack with all the other tickets from the season. He was trying to keep them all in mint condition. And I asked him, hey, hey, what's going on here? And he said, oh, I 100% believe that we are going to win the World Series this year. I know it's been like 56 years, but this is the year. I promise you, Matt, I'm going to save these things and I'm going to sell them on eBay when it happens. And like any other sports fan who's never in their lifetime experienced their team winning a championship, I scoffed so hard. Ugh, the Giants? I was like, okay, let's just enjoy the game. You know what happened in 2010? The Giants won the World Series. My friend didn't know that was gonna happen, but his confidence uh, that day at the park has always stuck out to me. He was not messing around. And Moses in this part of Deuteronomy is not messing around. There's so much at stake for the Israelite people. They've been through so much. And whether hearing these words right before they entered the promised land as they looked back at all that God had done for them, um, or if they were reading the sermon as they were about to return to their land after being in exile centuries later and were reflecting on the mistakes of the previous generation, the stakes are high regardless. Listen to what God is asking of you or you're not going to last long. The question before us is, is this message still applicable for us today? I think it is. I think the pandemic has exposed a lot of things Christians have to work on. I've talked to too many young people who are skeptical of the church. I don't necessarily mean Harbor Cubs specifically, but the American church in general. They have found that the church too often cares more about itself and its existence than the needs of others, or about their bank accounts and online broadcast viewership than the hearts of individuals. 
A friend of mine challenged me and a bunch of youth pastors back in the summer uh, when we were really struggling with how to do online ministry effectively. <clears throat> and people were starting to get maybe a little too flashy with their online productions. And that, I mean, they, they all wanted to be the next greatest YouTube star. And my friend reminded us that, hey guys, God is calling us to value connection over content. And he reminded me of John 13, 34 through 35, which says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, he feared that we were in danger of changing that last part to read, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the production value of your YouTube videos. And that challenged me. I'm someone who loves to produce high quality content. I cringe when churches settle for mediocre and I can easily begin to value content over connection. The pandemic has exposed the real values of the church. And if it's not loving God and loving our neighbor like we were commanded to do, then we are not gonna last long in this new territory. The third thing I take away from this passage is there is a choice set before the reader. Now, if you are a cat, you're gonna make the wrong choice because your owners are still gonna take care of you no matter what, but you're not a cat. You learned that making the wrong choice a second time is not a great idea. For example, when I was in college, I loved playing the guitar. I took some flamenco classes and I was decent enough to impress some people, but I only like playing for fun. The moment I had to perform in front of people, my hand would just freeze up. A few years out of college, a buddy of mine was getting married and he asked me to play in his wedding. He wanted to sing for his bride while I flamencoed it up. And I hadn't kept up with my guitar playing. And even though this wasn't the kind of situation that I, I like to do, I kind of avoided them. He was a good friend and so I agreed to it. So I practiced. I practiced for, for months on the song and it felt like I had it down. Then it came time for rehearsal and I'm up there and I begin to play and my hand freezes up and it's bad. And my friend like whips his head around and he looks me straight in the eye and he says, you better not do that tomorrow. I was like, oh great, no pressure. So I go home that night, I practice some more. I feel okay about it, but my anxiety is just rising and rising. The next morning I see him, he asks me if it's all good. I'm like, yeah, it's all good. The ceremony begins, I'm off on the side. I'm scheduled to play right after, the, right after they say their I do's. So I started off doing pretty well. And then it came to the part that I usually had trouble with. And sure enough, my hand freezes and you just hear like, that's how it sounds, I promise. And, and my friend who was singing just does one of these things. And we just kind of struggled through it together. Like afterwards, he does not speak to me. And a week later, I realized that we are not Facebook friends anymore. True story, friendship ruined because I messed up on a guitar song and he couldn't let it go. Do you know how many times I've played in weddings since then? None. Do you know how many times I've told worship leaders that I only play rhythm now? Every time. You can call it giving up or whatever, but I call it learning from a mistake and making a better choice. But that was just a little choice. The one in Deuteronomy is so much more significant, way more significant. What's it ultimately gonna be? Choose life or death, blessings or curses. So with all that you know now and the opportunity we have before us to learn from our mistakes and move forward with new opportunities, what is it going to be? Are you going to choose life? There's still life to live. The, the pandemic isn't the end of our story. And as this chapter closes and we begin the next one, are you going to choose a life of listening and loving God? This week I used social media for the first time in a very long time. I asked anyone who read my post to share things that they knew now that they wish they knew then. 
and there were some pretty good ones. Like, I wish I knew sometimes it's better to listen than to talk. I wish I knew to cherish times with loved ones more. Or I wish I knew to invest in Apple, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft in the 90s. I invite you to go check them out if we're friends on Facebook. But one in particular really highlights what it means to choose life in light of what you know and the consequences of choosing the opposite. Someone shared this. She said, I started drinking at 14 to be part of a friend group. It turned into how I coped with life and then it turned into alcoholism. What I have since learned is that loneliness is only temporary. You will find friends who value you just the way that you are and trying alcohol or drugs as a teenager can cost you your life, even if it doesn't kill you. And this is the part that got me. By being numb to escape hurt and sadness, I also was numb to happiness and joy. I let it rob me of so much living and I traded it for existing. I'm so thankful she shared that. What I know about that person now is that, that she's living life again and it's fun to see and it's good for her family. And I wanna make sure that you know that the mistakes you've made aren't the end to your story either. If you haven't chosen a life to listen to and love God in the past, today is a great day to start. And if it's been a while since you seriously chose to listen to and love God, and you can definitely see that there is more life in your life when you do, today is a good day to start again. And if you've been choosing to listen to and love God every day, and you have found the blessings that come from that, tomorrow's a new day, so do it again. So what does that look like to choose life? If we go back through the book of Deuteronomy and use it as a guide, there are a few things that kind of stand out and there are some trends. First, you choose life by following what God says. You learn who he is, how much he loves you, what he's done for you on the cross, and what he asks of you. And you don't just learn it for a little bit. It is a lifelong thing. Second, you choose life by encouraging each other in faith. This journey into new territory is not a solo mission. There's people all around you with the same choice before them that's before you. So you have to value connection with them. You have to love them, pray for them, share with them, work with them, and let them do the same thing for you. And third, you have to choose life by having concern for others in disadvantaged positions. Choosing life means that you're choosing it for others as well. We just talked about these verses from James 2 this week in youth group. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Honestly, that's something a cat would do for sure. Don't be a cat. I want to read the verses 19 through 20 of chapter 30 in Deuteronomy again as we close. And as we move into new territory, may these words resonate in your hearts and your minds, and may they inspire us to choose to listen to and love God. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. So I have three questions for you. First, what is something you know about yourself now or about God that you wish you knew earlier in your life and why? Two, what are the external standards you are trying to live up to and what are they doing to your heart and mind? And three, what choice do you think God is presenting you and how are you going to respond and why?